It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country if you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, you could listen right across the country anywhere at any time on your device of choice. So please do that if or sp- let someone know if they're outside our listening area. Uh, also, I want to let you know that you can listen to any of our, uh, our previous uh, 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 recordings and our, our interviews online. Uh, on our website and also on SoundCloud. They're put up there for your uh, enjoyment to go back to if you miss it at the time that it is on air. I'd like to welcome uh, my guest to the show, Sonia Maladecki. She is the co-founder and president of the Global Indigenous Development Trust, or how do you, is there? GIDT. GIDT. She's a Canadian Indigenous not-for-profit organization that works to re-empower Indigenous knowledge and technology to build strong economies based in natural values and principles through a partnership with GIDT's Indigenous Leadership. Sonia is working with the University of Toronto Centre for Global Engineering to develop their new Reconciliation Through Engineering initiative that applies a, get this, two-eyed seeing approach to research and solution um, through through generation of uh, for healthy housing and water, food, and energy systems founded in respect and reciprocity. Sonia is a Canadian lawyer with more than 15 years' experience working in international business, law, and community development, and she worked with uh, two of Canada's largest law firms, the Public Defender's Office in Argentina, the United Nations Development Program in Ukraine, the Prime Minister of Ukraine, and with the President of the Commission of Human Rights and Justice in Mexico. Sonia is fluent in English, Spanish, and Ukrainian, and I'm not surprised. I'm also very pleased to welcome her to the show today. Sonia, welcome. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. Uh, that's quite an introduction and uh, quite, uh, quite, quite the, the uh, resume of sorts to say that <laughs> you, have, uh, you certainly are qualified to be doing the things that you're doing, so it's great to hear. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, y- you know, your, your co-founding the, the Global Indigenous Development Trust. Well, um, this came as, um, as part of a long journey I was on. I spent a lot of time working in different realms. I traveled the world working for the UN, for human rights organizations, in the corporate legal sector, in international law. And I, was, I think now looking back, I was looking for a model of sustainable development that actually made sense to me, that would work on the ground, that we could apply and actually build a better future for, for everyone that worked for all people. Mm. And, uh, and just nothing made sense to me. I couldn't find anything that was really working, that, that considered all elements, that considered the interconnectivity of all life and our role in the ecosystem. And, and then I met Jerry, Jerry Asp, who's my co-founder of the Global Indigenous Development Trust, and he shared with me his story of transforming his nation, the Taltan Nation, together with their leadership um, and the people at the time there, from 98% unemployment, abject poverty, high suicide rates, you know, mm. 30 years ago, what was really the plight in many Indigenous communities in Canada, to 100% employment, thriving nation, 
you know, people that work today at NASA, his granddaughter sings opera in 22 different languages. They have an environmental assessment team that assesses all their resource projects based on full merits within their own community. They have engineers and scientists and biologists trained in all sorts of aspects of environmental sustainability. They have cultural cultural governance systems that are strong and thriving, reinvesting in their people and language and culture and heritage. And it's it's pretty amazing. And I, I listened to that and I thought, wow. That's a really comprehensive system that's considering all things and is working, mm. has been working for 30 years now. And now it's the new generation that's taking on the reins and it continues to thrive, but in harmony with their natural environment and with all things and with all life. And I thought, well, this is a model that actually makes sense to me. <laughs> this is something that maybe we could learn from and apply to, to how we all live um, in greater harmony with each other and with our natural environment. And, uh, and be successful and prosper at the same time. Uh, so I, I quit my corporate law job two weeks later, and Jerry and I created this organization, and we've been around the world to Peru, uh, to the Amazon and Ecuador, uh, to Central America, working with the Maya and with various indigenous communities to really show what's possible and to re-empower those traditional uh, knowledge systems and technologies in order to build better futures for everyone. Okay, so I have to ask, you've been around the world, which is wonderful. Uh, this is this is a, an, an indigenous community within mm-hmm. British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, how large of a community is it? Do you know? So there's about five thousand Taltans in total, and about two thousand people who live um, within the communities, three communities that make up the Taltan Nation. Uh, but as we started this exploration, we really started to reach out to other Indigenous leaders in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so our board is comprised of Indigenous leaders from across Canada who have also created really transformational change and are really implementing these natural values and principles in how they do business every day. From northern Saskatchewan to Northwest Territories to northern Ontario. I mean, there are examples across the country of Indigenous communities and leaders reinvesting back into their people, into community uh, based in natural values and principles of culture and, uh, and, and spirit and interconnection with all of life. Uh, it's really beautiful to see. Now, let me get this straight. I want to be clear. about. I want to make sure I understand this. Uh, it sounds wonderful. And uh, do I understand that, that everything that is being implemented is, 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 go, is, a, is a way to, to, to show the rest of the world in many ways that you can move forward and do this in a healthy way that is... That is uh, in, in in support and working with Mother Nature? Is that what I'm hearing? That's that's what I feel. And, I, and that's what I've been seeing across Canada and around the world. And I think that the most incredible thing is the resilience in the face of genocide and atrocities that continue to be um, imposed on many of these communities, if not all these communities around the world and in mm. Canada. Um, and yet the communities that we've seen are continuing to um, to dig deep and, and stand up strong and implement values-based economic development that is that is just really incredible to see given the plights that they're facing. When you start uh, when you started to put this this together and you started to I mean obviously you look, took a leap of faith when you left your own <laughs> position to do this you saw something there that made a lot of sense to you obviously. Um, what are some of the pe- what what are some of the things that people are saying to you when you go to another community and say how does this work or how do we implement this where do we start yeah i mean i think the the one of the biggest things that we ended up having to do was starting just to show it's possible i mm. think um after you know 500 years of being told that of your course. systems are not yeah. You know, right. not the right way to do things and that they're wrong, uh, people start to not believe in it anymore. Um, and I think that it's, uh, we're seeing right now 
as a global community that uh, right now we're at a critical time in humanity where we need to get it right and we need to um, have the faith to go back to those ways that of understanding that are critical to human um, survival going forward on this planet in a, a harmonious way. And so um, really just re-empowering um, that knowledge and that understanding as being um, really important for everyone going forward. And I think it's interesting. People um, miss the point of what seven generations mm. uh, means a lot, mm. a lot of times. And uh, if you really break it down, especially now working with these engineers, I'm realizing, you know, seven generations, that means that you have to build something today uh, that is in harmony mm. with all things, mm. the complexity of life systems, <laughs> right. which is grand, sure. uh, that will continue for the next 500 years in harmony. And I mean, if you think about the way we build today, nothing lasts. No. We haven't built right. civilizations no. that last. We haven't built cities that last. Things crumble, right? right? And so to think about really being able to to build community and society that that continues for that long of a time in harmony with all the complexity around us, I mean, that is complex thinking and understanding. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting that what you said earlier about uh, after 500 years, uh, you know, of, of being told that uh, your system isn't right or, you know, uh, all of those things that happened. I, the other thing, of course, that happens is that people don't tend to believe in themselves anymore either. So there's, the, you know, there's, there's the, you have to rebuild the people to start believing in themselves as well before they can start to implement the greater uh, things that we're talking about. It, it, would that make sense to you? A hundred percent. And that's really where we started. You know, the first thing that uh, Jerry asked me when we first started this work is, what do you want to do in the mornings that will get you excited to get mm. out of bed? Mm. And I thought about it and I said, you know, I want to empower people to empower themselves again, mm. and believe in themselves again, because mm. that was the biggest lesson that I had for myself mm. um, and was able to, uh, that I'd like to share with others. And so really the first part of what we do is is training leaders and training people and youth and communities to believe in themselves again and to, to have the tools and resources to create transform transformational change on the ground in their communities, in their nations and around the world. Uh, we want to talk about the engineering approach and get into that a little bit more. But first of all, if you don't mind, I'd like to, if if you have some more to, to expand on in this, because you said this started 30 years ago in Jerry's community mm -hmm. and in Celtech, but how do you think, or from your sense, or what he explained to you, made it possible at that time for this to start to be implemented? Well, these are, are things that we've been breaking down and, mm -hmm. and using as part of our, our toolkit and things. And uh, really, ultimately, it takes a champion in the community. I mean, I, I think one of the most incredible lessons I learned from Jerry is the fact that, you know, just the ability to every day, I mean, think about it 30 years ago, we're just starting to really talk reconciliation mm -hmm. and whatever that means and building better relationships. I mean, 30 years ago, that wasn't something that people were talking about. Right. And to yet every day in the face of such oppression and difficult circumstances to get up and just continue to move things forward every day, no matter what, and, and have the motivation and the, the power within you to, to keep that going for so long, keep that light going, um, I think is really powerful. So having a champion in the communities, even when things seem the darkest, mm -hmm. sometimes it's darkest before dawn, yeah. and, uh, and having someone in the community that can really um, inspire hope um, in the youth mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and move things forward. Um, having a vision for the future, it's uh, you know part of manifesting everything. You need to see where you want to go in order to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. um, having a, a really strong plan and a vehicle for moving that forward, Jerry often says. Um, so really being able to have Simple tools. It's not, 
you know, that complicated when you break it down, but mm. it's really being able right. to, you know, take one thing at a time right. and one step at a time and move that forward. But um, like the Clutro up in Northwest Territories um, started realizing that business was getting ahead of their values and they restructured their mm. entire investment corporation in order to put values back at the top. Wow. And so when you yeah. look at these examples and, uh, you know, um, English River up in northern Saskatchewan, where everything is for profit for the community, the shareholders are the community members of their development corporation, mm-hmm. right? And you look at these values of really being able to reinvest back into people mm-hmm. um, and spend, you know, the Tal 10 spent the first 10 years just reinvesting all their profit back into their people, back into their youth. And now, you know, 30 years later, they've got a really well-educated, trained workforce of people who are mm-hmm. investing back in the community mm-hmm. and back into lives. And so it's having that vision, I think, is really critical. You, you know, you touched on something really interesting there about uh, the mindset of the community, basically, to be able to uh, buy into that vision, you know, and, and stay the course of that and reevaluate and say, yeah, we're getting off course here. We need to re- relook at this because it's not lining up with where we want to go and, and stick within the values that we want to have. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy to just take a care of myself, you know, to mm-hmm. just take care of me or, and not look at the bigger picture. I remember hearing a story once uh, some time ago. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't even have to reiterate this story or share this story. Uh, all we have to do is look at indigenous cultures prior to uh, a contact where they were living in harmony mm-hmm. with Mother Nature and uh, continuing a- and, and looking at how they left no footprint. You know, that's what the, one of the biggest things is now in, in cases. There's no way to say, oh, they were living there because they lived light on the land, as the, as the saying goes. And, and that, uh, I, I'm sure it would have been easy to perhaps build structures or do all kinds of things, but it's that value system. It's that way of looking at living in harmony with Mother Nature that infuse the community. I, you know, that's, that's what makes, makes indigenous culture so wonderful, is yeah. that it, 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 they, they stuck to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, and I think it's important to um, clarify that living in harmony with nature and with, our, with each other and with all things is not always a, a pretty picture. I mean, mm. you know, there is hunting and trapping yeah, and fishing and, you know, wildlife is, yep. you know, vicious and, yep. and can be cruel sometimes. And, and that's the reality. But it's uh, but spending time on the land, there is something you learn that you are connected to the, to the land. You are a part of nature, right. um, not separate from it. Yep. And therefore, you begin to understand innately how you impact all different things exactly. and how, you know, you may want to be able to then, you know that if you kill all the moose this year or put a road in this here that disrupts migratory paths and you no longer have those moose moose or caribou, then you don't have food for the next season. But then that affects the whole supply chain, right? And so just having that understanding Mm -hmm. of our place within the ecosystem is is hugely important. And so, you know, what's been amazing is being able to translate that knowledge into these engineering projects of Mm. housing and food and and energy and uh, water systems, right? And how we build a modern society based on those principles. Great. I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Sonia Moladecki, and she is the co-founder and president of the Global Indigenous Development Trust. And it's a pleasure to have her here, and you just heard her talking about she's working with engineers at the University of Toronto as they develop uh, uh, ways uh, to, uh, to implement and look at 
ways of, of sustainability uh, and and those kind of things. So let's let's talk more about that. It's a two-eyed approach uh, that I believe that that you're uh, using to to uh, to look forward. Why two-eyed approach? Well, the two-eyed seeing approach was coined by Elder Albert Marshall a number of years ago um, out in, in New Brunswick, and uh, really, it's it's taking the approach that. Um, you see from uh, from one eye the indigenous knowledge perspective mm-hmm. and from the other eye the Western science or technology mm-hmm. engineering perspective. Mm-hmm. And it really is, rather than looking at it as separate um, competitive systems, looking at them as systems that actually can work together and complement one another. Mm. And I think it's a really beautiful way to look at how we might build our systems because it's uh, really talking about non-separation, about the fact mm. that we all have something to contribute yep. to building a better future. Sure. And I think if we all respect and acknowledge the value and um contribution that each system can bring to to bringing that solution forward, then we can actually get there together, right? And this is, you've been working on this for how long now with the engineers? So this NGC? launched a year ago, yep. this initiative. Uh, we're just in the early stages and uh, we're, we've spent the past year really trying to say, it sounds nice in, in theory, this concept mm. of two-eyed seeing. <laughs> now, how might we apply this in a practical sense, <laughs> sure. recognizing that there are systems in place that are really grounded in right. in in, in a certain way of doing things that we're trying to break through and uh, open up to a broader discussion. And so the past year has really been about building those relationships and not only between people mm-hmm. in communities and at the university, but also between knowledge systems. Of course. And, uh, and and you mentioned this, you said between people. And of course, uh, the people are coming from their own perspective on this. So there's there's that kind of talking that's going to have to be going on to just establish a language that is understandable uh, to to make both these both the 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 the, uh, two-eyed seeing system that you're talking about work so that everybody's on the same page right and i think it's been an interesting a very fascinating journey especially a number of the engineers um have mentioned that it's really been a beautiful experience for them because um in the engineering discipline there we're used to looking at things um at least in western science and engineering really as um as an object, as sort of separate from us mm. and um, as contained within a space in a silo. Um, and really the indigenous perspective is human-centered, right? Mm. And so being able to bring humanity back into how we desi- design housing so that we may design healthy housing instead of necessarily smart housing, <laughs> right? And and communities that support life systems. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, one of the critical things that we um, – initiated at the very beginning of this initiative was that not only while it's a two-eyed seeing approach Mm. the foundation and the driver must be the indigenous knowledge because Mm. if you look at the two systems the indigenous knowledge system is really a comprehensive um, interconnection of the whole understanding the whole system Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. um, where there isn't a separation between parts we are all one we are all interconnected we're all whole Uh, Whereas the Western science perspective really digs down deep into one specific element of that to really better understand that one system. And so if you look at those two together, um, it's necessary to start with, you know, the whole Mm -hmm. interconnection of Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. and then really being able to then, okay, might we focus on this one to better understand how we might do this better, right? Right. So it's getting that worldview or that understanding Mm -hmm. of the big picture and how it all works together uh, you, know, you know, in many ways, this makes a lot of sense to me to bring engineers in to start working on these kind of solutions. Yeah. 
uh, with, like you're saying, with the correct interpretation of understanding uh, and, and, and view from the indigenous perspective mm -hmm. to solve these. Uh, are there, have, have you had, have the engineers had many aha moments or are, are, are they, are they, are they uh, getting, are they, are they grabbing this? Are they, are they pleased with the, the idea of doing this together? Yeah, you know, absolutely. We've had some really exciting um, synergies and, and starting um, some interesting projects. One project on a healthy housing initiative up with um, uh, one of the women leaders in mm. uh, the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation, right. uh, Becky Big Canoe, who's yep. an outstanding leader and yeah. brilliant in her design. She came to us with this housing design that she had that was just off the charts. Right. I mean, it integrates, and she's not an engineer, right? right? Sure. But she's integrated, you know, uh, natural materials so the house breathes. Mm. And so there's no mold issues. And wow. the heating and the cooling is optimized because of the materials that are used and the positioning of the house with the sun and the natural environment and food systems integrated and the wind, like everything was considered, mm. right? And optimizing the energy from the earth and right. the connection to the land. And sure. it was just a really comprehensively, beautifully done yeah. design and, and concept thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we brought together a sustainable build uh, engineer from okay. the university. Yeah. And they've been working together on being able to formulate a project that could support some of those ideas mm. um, into, into action, into mm. a practical application. Mm -hmm. And so we're just starting that project, but uh, we've had some really exciting meetings. And I think both the engineer, um, Marianne Tucci, and uh, at the university and Becky Big Canoe have really started to form a really interesting relationship around these ideas. Now, when you say that, if if uh, are the engineers uh, encouraged by what they see in terms of how uh, Becky brought in these natural uh, elements, and are they are are they is it something they had not thought about and and doing in this way? Absolutely, and I think there's a lot of excitement around it, mm -hmm. and particularly, you know, um, there's a lot of constraints that we've developed within the planning and development here in, in big cities, right? Mm. I mean, we're, there's not a lot of space left to really sure. develop and, and yeah. there's a lot of constraints and regulation and code and yep. things that really limit how we might be able to use our imagination and creativity to to go beyond. Mm. Um, not a lot of la natural land left to yep. really be able to take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're presented with an idea that really is um, thinking of the bigger picture of all the different elements and not constrained by those systems mm -hmm. um, and ways of thinking, uh, it really gets people excited, I think. At the possibilities. So in this, I just want to, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my mind's going now on this idea. So would the, the kind of thing that, that Becky brought forward is the kind of thing that would work year round for, you know, for living conditions, you know, regardless of whether it's hot or cold? Absolutely. I mean, wow. she built a, a small demo version 20 mm -hmm. years ago for her own house. Oh, yeah. Um, and it doesn't consider it doesn't have all the elements. So we're looking at doing a proper demo, um, yep. you know, with this project in the future. Um, but it has some of the natural materials and some of the elements considered. Mm. And uh, and her house has stood up compared to most other houses immaculately well over 20 years. That's and great, so yeah. considering the mold issues that we have mm -hmm. ravaging indigenous yeah. communities in yeah. Canada, um, she hasn't had any issues with those. And there's been a lot of different, really positive things that have come out of that experience. So I think, you know, through this project, we're hoping to be able to test out and model out some of these materials and some of these elements a little bit better so that we can really make a case for some of these natural um, elements and properties to be used um, in house design. That sounds great. Uh, I have to ask now if, if she is bringing forward these ideas. And I'm just, you know, wondering how this will roll out. Let's say something uh, is is able to be used and manufactured, or you know, uh, I, I I would hope that 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 credit is is given where credit is due. 
Oh, 100%. And I mean, Becky's driving the project. She has her own organization called EnviroNative. Mm. And she her goal is to start to develop training programs mm. and train Indigenous women mm. um, in particular to be able to build and take ownership of their housing and their home again. Nice. Sounds great. Uh, Sarah, is there anything, uh, Sonia, sorry, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you feel is important to mention so far? I mean, I just think that there's a lot of difficulty. And one thing a lot of people ask me here mm-hmm. in the city mm-hmm. is, you know, we throw a lot of money at communities and why are there still so many issues and so mm-hmm. many problems, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and I think that um, there's a lot of challenges that we're facing. I don't want to paint this as mm-hmm. a very, sure. you know, everything is roses because yep. there's certainly a huge amount of challenges. We're working up in some of the northern flying mm-hmm. communities in Ontario. <clears throat> yep. and uh, And they're really being faced with, their hands tied behind their backs and being able to do a lot and mm-hmm. be able to move forward in a sustainable way. Right. Um, so one of the things we are also supporting one of the communities up north to do is to um, create a documentary, uh, which they had come to us to ask to mm. do if we would support them, um, to tell their story of what it's really like living on reserve. Mm. Um, it's something that I was really shocked when I first went to mm-hmm. see, just about the n- number of constraints and um, bad policy and planning that really went into um, these these circumstances and these reserves um, that still continue to plague communities today. Um, But, you know, it's not my story to tell. And so it's something that we're going to be supporting them to be able to tell. Well, when people ask uh, those kind of things, they they really need to ask their their, uh, government representatives because that's basically how these policies got implemented and why the communities are set up the way they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, in many ways, it was deliberately done. uh, And it's unfortunate. And... um, the impacts uh, we're now seeing and, and feeling in, in many, many communities. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate you, you sharing that. And uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show. And I wish you all the best with this endeavor. It's wonderful. And uh, I, I want to thank you for sharing those positive uh, stories that you did right off the top of the show. And, uh, and your partnership with Jerry. And, and uh, I wish them all the best as well. well the, sounds like this is a community I want to check out and see. So I appreciate you bringing that forward today. Thank you very much. I think that would be a really great story to tell, too. I just, uh, you know, they their community, unfortunately, was devastated by wildfires last summer, mm. completely burnt to the ground. And they right. stood up and they said, you know what, this is an opportunity for us to build better. Right. And we're going to do it better now. And so I think there's a lot of these stories. And I'm really happy to have a place like this to be able to share positive stories that are happening across Canada. So thank you. And uh, we're pleased to be able to give you that opportunity and other people that opportunity to share positive Indigenous stories. So uh uh, wonderful having you here. Really appreciate you taking the time to come in. Uh, that is uh, Sonia Moledecki, and she is the uh, co-founder and president of the Global Indigenous Development Trust. And uh, she is working with the University of Toronto Centre for Global Engineering to develop their new Reconciliation Through Engineering initiative that applies a two-eyed seeing approach to research and solution generation for healthy housing, water, food, and energy systems founded in respect and reciprocity. So, Sonia, once again, Jimmy Gwetch for coming in today. Thank you, David. Don't go away. We'll be right back here on Element FM and Moment of Truth right after this. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And don't forget, you can also listen on the Radio Player Canada app. Just uh, go to download the app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And uh, follow the directions. You could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country. 
And that means, of course, outside of our listening area. So if you have someone uh, that might be interested in hearing some of the programming that we have or catching some of the interviews that we do here on Moment of Truth, please let them know that they can listen uh, at their leisure 24 hours a day, seven days a week by downloading the Radio Player Canada app. I'd like to welcome uh, my next guest to the show. Neil Hetherington is the CEO of Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. <laughs> I didn't realize to it was touch a, such a tongue twister. It, it, uh, well, it's, um, it's a wonderful organization. It's been around for, uh, since 1983, uh, but it's unfortunate that it has to be around, uh, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but it does do good work. And uh, unfortunately, it seems that that work is on the rise. It is on the rise. Uh, we issued uh, the Who's Hungry report uh, mm-hmm. this 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 past uh, year, and and there were there were troubling statistics in there. And and as you pointed out, in terms of the rise, it is uh, it's rising at double the rate of the population growth in the uh, Toronto area of people that are that are needing food banks. Um, and uh, and and what's puzzling to me is things are pretty good in the economy. You know, things things are relatively good. We're con- constantly told in terms of employment rates that things are things are fine, but yet there's this rise in food bank usage. And so you have to ask the the question: uh, What's going on? Why is it that uh, that that uh, ends are not meeting for uh, a rising number of individuals? And uh, and so we we look at different factors that why that might be uh, the case in terms of the cost of living in in major uh, metropolitan areas, uh, particularly Toronto. Yeah. Now uh, the uh, the report who's hungry uh, you did that along with uh, the North York Harvest Food Bank as well as the Mississauga Food Bank, uh, along with the Daily Bread Food Bank that you combined that information to come up with the uh, the report. Correct. And people can go to your website to see that report if they so wish to find out and, and do more digging in to find out the what you found out through the survey. I hope they do because the report is uh, certainly the most extensive report uh, that we have ever uh, written. Uh, the author, Talia Bronstein, did a, did a fantastic job on that. And what, what is important about that is not just the academic rigor that was applied to it, but the, the last couple of pages where she lays out a, a number of recommendations that all three organizations put forward to uh, to say, how do we reduce the number of uh, people who are needing food banks mm-hmm. across uh, across our region? And uh, and they're 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 straightforward, and uh, we just need the leadership to make that happen. Now, let me ask you this: Why did you think it was important to even do this report to begin with? Well, uh, there's there's a variety of reasons, but one is um, if there's a, there's a crisis there, you need to draw that uh, draw attention to the crisis. Um, there is a crisis, um, and and this puts it in no uncertain terms. It just makes it very very clear. Uh, you know, there were over a million food bank visits in in Toronto uh, last year, and um, uh, and and so you can't ignore that 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 reality, um, and so. Uh, so we did the report to draw attention to to that, and then uh, and then the the second part was around mobilization. So now that you've got the facts and and it stirs your heart to do something, uh, how do we make sure that there are uh, um, activities happening from an advocacy perspective to change government policy? How do we make sure that there are individuals who uh, who are moved to to volunteer? Uh, how do we make sure that there are individuals who are moved to uh, to give either food or or funds to to the Daily Bread Food Bank, North York Harvest, and and, and the Mississauga Food Bank, and uh, and and make a tangible difference? Now, when you say that there was you know there was a need, there was there was a crisis. 
uh, obviously numbers were telling you that you I guess you saw more people coming in That's, and that drew your attention to it yeah exactly the the numbers are there and then uh, and then I think the, you know what we did beyond the numbers was we started to dive into um, who's going hungry um, okay. who is having to come come mm-hmm. to uh, to the food bank and uh, what are the the commonalities that that they have and uh, and I'll, I'll give you a few of the sort of Please insights that, that we say, had. Let's uh, dive uh, into uh, that a little bit. So some of the some of them were the one that was one that was surprising to me was forty four percent of food bank users um, have a post secondary education. And you think about you know what we were told as kids. You know, you go through education, you go through through high school, you go on to to, to college or university. You're going to be fine. You're going to be set. That's not the case. Um, and th- that, that was a troubling one uh, of the, you know, people are spending a lot of money and going into debt often and uh, to, to have to get that further education. And, uh, and it's not always proving to be uh, um, as beneficial as, as it could be. I'm not in any way saying don't go do mm-hmm. that. Uh, but it's, uh, um, these are individuals who have gone and done that and still find themselves in, in difficult straits. Now, that, that's, that's somewhat interesting, and I do remember hearing something that, that was related to that comment a, a few years ago, that you know, getting that post-secondary education is no longer uh, what it used to be. Yeah, so. yeah it, it, it clearly is, is not. And, and so you know, why isn't it? Uh, I think you start to look at the cost of living. We know that individuals who, uh, uh, who make use of food banks, um, their rent increases on average increase by 6%. So- we have rent control, which is which is a good thing to to happen in in the province. Um, but if you are, are are moving at all, you know you're subject to to market rates. And so those who 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 might be in uh, precarious housing uh, situations, uh, their average rents are increasing beyond uh, that of of inflation. So that that furthers the gap between those who have and those who who do not. Um, so so that's a, a problem. And then we looked at, um, and I think the, 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 the one sort of headline to me was that uh, an individual who makes use of the food bank has on average $7.83 after paying rent to survive on per day. So a simple trip to the food bank, you know, there's, there's, there's six bucks in, in your uh, TTC fare and you've got $1.83 to survive on. And neither of us could survive on $1.83 uh, per day. And um, and so, uh, you know, there, there's an income issue. We often say at the food bank and, and Nick Saul is, is, is the one credited with this quote that food insecurity across the country, food insecurity is not a food issue. It's an income issue. And, and I agree with with Nick's uh, comment on that, that it is an, an income issue. I, I believe it's also uh, an expense issue where the cost of living uh, is just far outpacing uh, the ability for, for individuals to, to keep up. Um, now, uh, one of the things that, you know, that was, was talked about in it with the food specifically is, is fruits and vegetables, those kind of things, which have increased about 7%. Uh, in the last year, uh, but uh, I do remember about a year ago because there was some, some of that shortage that happened because of flooding and, mm-hmm. and droughts and those kind of things. We were going to see that eventually, but uh, y- y- you you do with this uh, with this report tie it directly to housing housing costs. 
Yeah, we we uh, we talk about the if if you solve affordable housing, let's just go down the road of imagining a world where there was no poverty housing, mm-hmm. where everybody was was housed uh, within the means that they could afford. You eliminate the need for food banks, mm-hmm. and so um, so we are often advocating, um, you know, upstream in poverty to be able to say, how do we get uh, decent affordable housing built all across the country? And, and that can come in the form of uh, getting back to co-ops, um, making sure that there is new rent gear to income uh, housing available, tenant protections uh, that are appropriate, uh, that balance uh, tenants' rights with, uh, with a landlord's desire to build new uh, supply. Um, these are the types of, of policies that, uh, that we, we continuously advocate for, but at the same time, you know, it just it, it takes it takes funds. It takes leadership and money uh, to to make it happen. We we could we do have the resources in this great country to be able to uh, uh, to make um, uh, a lack of affordable housing a, a historical thing. Um, we just need to uh, to make sure that uh, that that is um, uh, our charge and that we've got the mandate to do and put people in office that have that mandate. Mm. Uh, one thing you alluded to earlier in the conversation, and it's pointed out in the report as well, is that there's an increase in the haves and the have-nots. Um, now, I guess it would be interesting to to break that down a little more because you know it kind of sounded like just there's a, there's a little line there uh, for just being able to to get the food um, that would that would put people in the in the have area. But I, I think we're talking about in general the gap that is increasing with it, with with the the income of of many people uh, astronomically and and those people that are just trying to get by. Oh, I I I, I think that that goes unchallenged. Where 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 folks know that the there there is an, a growing uh, income disparity. And uh, it's exacerbated by the the gig economy. It's exacerbated by um, uh, precarious employment. Uh, We know that uh, one in four uh, people who are employed in the city of – in the province are in precarious employment scenarios. Mm. And uh, and so – uh, you look at you know a lack of benefits um, that that happen. Uh, maybe an individual is 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 you know they've they've got a, a let's just above minimum wage job, but they have a sick child. It becomes very difficult for them to be able to put, to afford the prescription medications. And we call for uh, for the federal government to take a serious look at uh, at how we can get to a national pharma uh, plan. I think that uh, that that would be a, a wonderful step forward, particularly given the the way that uh, the economy is restructuring itself. Um, now, one of the things that the report talks about is that there's actually in the in the Toronto core area there's a drop in people visiting, but overall there is an increase. Right. What we're seeing is um, uh, a. a Pushing out to the the uh, of from the downtown core of the city uh, to to area the the highest growth areas are in the inner suburbs, and uh, so in the Toronto area that would be North Scarborough, North Etobicoke, and uh, and uh, North York, and and so you see that push happening, and uh, and and so we we have different theories on why that is happening, but in general. It's a uh, cost of living. Uh, where where can people afford to uh, uh, to to move to? And so the highest volume of individuals making use of food banks still happens in Rosedale Center. 
the Rosedale Center has uh, the highest volume of, uh, of, of food bank users right down in downtown Toronto. Um, it also, you know, by, it also has the the most um, uh, affluent uh, Canadians mm. living in in that area, but mm. it also has the the highest uh, propensity to make use of food banks, mm. and so um, so there is a push out. Um, and, and what's troubling about that is, as individuals who are pushed out because of a lack of affordable housing are pushed into the their their costs uh, go up dramatically um, beyond what they can afford. So their cost of transportation, and I think about costs of of transportation as an example. Not just the the subway fare, but the time. Think about if you're a, a single parent, you got a couple of kids, and maybe you're in two positions trying to push them together in or two two job positions, pushing them together. The, and you're spending an hour or two on on public transit to get to your your place of employment. Um, we are robbing individuals of of you know their ability to um, to care for their 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 families. Um, beyond uh, the economic care that they're trying to to, to make happen. Mm. I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Moment of Truth on uh, Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And my guest is uh, Neil Hetherington. He is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. And we're talking about a report uh, that uh, he uh, and the, the organization of the Daily Bread Food Bank did along with North York Harvest Food Bank and the Mississauga Food Bank uh, talking about the increase that, uh, that that they've seen in the last year, and in particular, I guess that was between April 1st of 2018 and March 31st of 2019 that this report f- uh, focuses on. Um, now, you, you also uh, spoke about uh, how th- things are changing. You've talked about the discrepancy uh, that people are finding it hard uh, to... to uh, uh, to buy food. One is the increase that we've talked about a little bit, but also is the, the increase in, in housing uh, that is making a difference and, and you're seeing more people come through the, through the doors. I also want to just uh, mention to people that um, this report is on the Daily Bread Food Bank website. So if you're interested, you can go to the Daily Bread Bed Food Bank. <laughs> Getting tripped up. We'll on make this it again. super easy. Dailybread.ca <laughs> slash Who's Hungry, <laughs> and you. and that report just pops right up. There or or just Google Daily Bread Who's Hungry, and and, yeah. and it comes right up. There you go. Thank you. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about your website is that there's a place that people can donate. You were mentioning that earlier. And right now you have something going on up until December 24th where people, if they donate, it's going to be matched. That's right. Uh, so we are, we are thrilled that the MGF Foundation has said we are going to put up to $50,000 towards uh, this crisis. Um, but we want to make sure that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, um, uh, um, the, the people behind the foundation have said, uh, let's leverage it and let's, uh, um, let's make a call out. And so if people do make a donation to the Daily Bread uh, Food Bank um, between now and the 24th, uh, that foundation will, will match it. And, and I, I hope that we're able to, to raise that full $50,000. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's 50,000 meals uh, across the city uh, that will be um, uh, provided to, uh, to individuals who are, who, who, are, who are really needing it. Mm. Okay, so if you're interested in doing that, go to dailybread.ca. And you can find out more about that. I also want to mention that uh, they are on uh, other social media platforms. On Facebook, at Daily Bread Food Bank. Twitter, at Daily Bread uh, T.O. 
and Instagram, uh, hashtag WeAreDailyBread, and on YouTube as well. You can see some interesting videos. I think one uh, in particular that uh, Neil is featured in, it's a CEO challenge I think you do for, for uh, raising money uh, that you do. Oh, the, you know, we had a we had a great event where it, there was a CEO uh, uh, cook-off. Mm. And we, and so we, we invited uh, different uh, um, executives from, from the city uh, to uh, to come out and show off their culinary skills. And it's become, uh, we think, a, a signature event for uh, for the organization. And we host it in um, in May, at the end of May, uh, because um, uh, that's a time where people don't often think about the food bank. You know, mm-hmm. you know at the holiday time, sure. we often think about, yeah. you know, uh, getting around the table together with family. But when it comes to July, um, people people are at the cottage. They're 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 do, they're they're out in in the community, and they don't often think about uh, about the need that happens all year round. And so uh, so that's why we do that event at that time. Right, and so yeah, you can see some of the things that uh, Daily Bread gets involved with uh, if you go to the uh, website and go to the and check out these other social media platforms. Y- you know this this report, as you say, uh, and talks about. Um, Food uh, uh, that is food insecurity is it's not about a lack of food. It's about a lack of income. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what we've done on the lack of food uh, or the, the, the question about how do we get more food to come to individuals who, who are missing that, that income, one of the new things that Daily Bread has, has embarked on has been our, our Farm to Food Bank program. In 2013, there was a uh, tripartisan uh, private members bill that went through that gave farmers a, an Ontario tax credit for donating uh, food uh, that uh, they have decided perhaps not to harvest. So um, a lot of the grocery stores are meticulous that a, a green pepper cannot be too big or too small. It has to go through a certain sort of size. Uh, wow. And uh, and so um, so the um, uh, those would not be harvested or they'd be just re- rejected. Or if, uh, you know, um, there was some hypothetical situation where there was a madman uh, running the United States, that there was a, a, a trade war happening with uh, – uh, with China, um, and suddenly soybean or a different commodity or a different uh, product was uh, was no longer um, uh, of the same value that the farmer needed it to be. They can now harvest it and get a an Ontario tax credit. Right. And so we've latched on to this, and every single week we are sending uh, trucks down, uh, primarily to Leamington area, uh, to be able to uh, um, uh, get these 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 great. Products and uh, the farmers benefit because they get a tax credit. Of course, uh, the families who who need to make use of the food bank benefit because it is um, nutritious food. And daily bread benefits in that uh, we're able to increase the volume of food um, at a, actually a much lower cost than it typically uh, costs us to be able to source food. So it's a win win win, and uh, and we're uh, we're excited about that uh, program and the growth of it. It's attributed to the fact that we were able to distribute about twenty five, just under twenty five percent more food. Food, uh, last year than the year prior um, at about the same cost. So it's it's been a wonderful uh, initiative. I would like to see it happen at, at the federal level. Um, the you know it's it's a great scenario for for all three parties, and uh, and I would love to see uh, to to see um, that win federally. Honestly, I'm surprised it isn't. <laughs> in effect, I, I don't understand why uh, we haven't you know as a, as a society thought of others or thought about the waste. That is being created. That uh, this is good food going to waste. And and similarly, I do remember something just recently, uh, and I'm not sure where if it's if it's Australia or or what country it was uh, 
that that has just said that uh, 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 companies and I'm, I'm surprised other even even uh, food stores that uh, have food that is just on the cusp of still being good but past yep. the due date uh, or or date of, of you know that that it, it is set out therefore as as being on the a shelf that is still capable of being sold and, and consumed. Uh, that they aren't offered, if they're not, I'm surprised, uh, a similar uh, tax break where if they donate to a food bank and that food goes to good waste, that they get a write-off as well. Well, we are, uh, w- what I can uh, um, uh, let you know is that there are stores throughout uh, the city and all across the country mm. that, that do make sure that uh, good food is mm. being uh, uh, provided. Uh, and, and so they might have a short uh, shelf life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a, a store wants to put a, let's call it a loaf of bread. They want to make sure that there's seven days before it's best before date. When it gets to the three days before, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that it goes to somebody who's going to eat it within three days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, so we do have those, those programs. And, uh, and I just think that if we want to, to, to really, uh, um, address the the issue of food insecurity of course we need to deal with uh, the income issue and the cost of living issues um, but in the emergency interim period let's make sure that there is enough food um, for for everyone and and I think a, a national strategy on that front would be uh, uh, welcome and I, I have no no doubt that there are individuals listening to this program that are in positions of power um, that are uh, whether it's through sending an email to their their MP or writing a letter uh, or the MP themselves uh, who can make that uh, that, that change happen mm-hmm. Yeah, let's hope that there are people out there. Now, can we can we uh, dive into a little bit more of of the numbers, uh, if you don't mind, about what you what you saw from from this in terms of uh, age range, kind of people that are coming through the doors. Yeah, so uh, the demographics uh, we um, uh, we see a number of seniors that are having to make use of uh, food banks. Um, there are a number of singles, though, um, that, that are having to, to come to food banks because sometimes government programs and other uh, and, and NGOs uh, target um, uh, children or, or seniors. And, and the people left out in, in, in the middle there um, uh, are struggling to, to get by. So we saw a growth on, on that front. We also, for the first time, decided that we would start to ask questions about people's backgrounds uh, and, and, and race in particular. And, uh, and, and we found some, some really troubling uh, data. Uh, for example, in Toronto, uh, the um, uh, African-American uh, population, the black community, uh, it represents about 8% of the population, but 24% of uh, mm. food bank users uh, the same three-time multiplier is the case for uh, those of Latino uh, descent. Um, and uh, uh, for the um, Aboriginal population, we we're talking about a, uh, a five-to-one ratio. So five per- 1% of the population, um, but 5% of food bank usage. And that, you know, when we caught those numbers, which lined up with, uh, with other studies that have come out in the, in the, 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 this, at the same time by um, Foodshare and Paul Taylor, um, we, uh, um, we were really troubled by those, those numbers. And, um, and I think that, you know, it, it stung to the core. Um, you have to ask questions about uh, personal biases, systemic challenges that, uh, that individuals are experiencing. And um, and I think we, we, there needs to be um, deep reflection in terms of why that is the case and and how we start to change that. Mm. 
Um, Neil, what what are the what are some of the other things that that people can do to help? They can donate. We mentioned we mentioned that they can volunteer as well. Yeah, you know, I I, I often say it as uh, very simply: uh, volunteer, donate. That's food or funds or mm. advocate. And mm. that last one is 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 the mountain. You know, that's the Everest. You know, to advocate for systemic change, um, to advocate that uh, that people have an inward uh, reflection of personal biases, um, that people um, start to write those those letters and start to change the the laws and the the, the regulations that 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 elected officials begin to to say, I want to put uh, my pen to work and and make sure that the funds are there to be able to develop good, affordable housing uh, that's available to everyone across uh, across the country. Um, those are monumental and challenging and, and difficult to, to do. But if we want to, to live out, you know, the, what we often talk about Canadian values, I think we and, and, and our obligations when it comes to a, a, a right to food, then we're going to have to, uh, to, to, to pick up the pen or the, the placard or the postcard and uh, begin to make a difference. Now, we are uh, talking uh, specifically about uh, Toronto and the, and the Daily Bread food, food Bank, but um, I'm sure uh, there are other food banks in other parts of the country that also need, uh, need help and need donations. Um, you know, specifically, we are broadcasting into the Ottawa area, and so uh, please, if you're in that area, uh, don't think that there, there's, there's uh, not a need in your area. I'm sure there are. Please go to the website, find out about it. Do you know of any local uh, ones? Well, well the, I, w- I would say that uh, Michael Maiden, for who runs the, the Ottawa Food Bank, is, mm. is one of the finest leaders that the food banks have across the country, mm. who is making uh, a, a dent in... Uh, uh, being able to to deal with the influx that they have seen in the Ottawa region, and and again, it's the same thing, you mm. know, the, the the growing divide between those who who have and those who don't, and uh, and 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 the cost of living in this in the city increasing so so dramatically, and so um, you know, I don't I don't think uh, my board would mention that I think it's a really solid thing to do to uh, to to donate locally to to the Ottawa Food Bank. Uh, but if you happen to be in the Toronto area, I don't mind the the, the dailybreadfoodbank.ca as well. Yeah. Now, um, if people want to drop off food, um, yeah. is there just one place they can do that, or where can they drop these we, things off? We make that so incredibly easy. Um, you you can walk almost no matter where you are in the city of Toronto, you can almost walk to a to a to a fire hall. Mm-hmm. Um, every every community has a fire hall. And they will take uh, take the food, and they will, uh, and we we pick it up on a regular basis, and uh, and so drop it off to any fire hall or any grocery store, and it will get to to a family in need. And we're talking about non perishables, is that right? That's right, the shelf stable, and then for the uh, fresh product, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know, just kind of a, a myth busting. Forty two percent of what the food bank distributes is fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, many people, when they think about uh, mm-hmm. us, they they often think about uh, boxes and and cans. Um, that's the the public uh, giving those those products, and they're much appreciated. At the same time, uh, when when you go shopping, you also need to go shopping for uh, for for lettuce and milk. And so we will uh, um, we supplement through the cash donations through the farm to food bank program. Uh, we make sure that uh, we hit that target of forty two percent. Excellent. Uh, Neil, it's been a pleasure having you in today, and uh, we appreciate all the great work that you guys do. 
Thank you very, very much for, for raising uh, awareness and attention uh, to this, and I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the time. Thank well, you. Well, we are grateful uh, that uh, you're there and you're helping, and, and uh, we're able to do what we can do to help in, as well. Uh, Neil Hetherington is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto, and he's been speaking to us about the need uh, for people to get out there and uh, contribute, as he said, donate your, uh, your food or your, your dollars, uh, as well as advocacy, get on, write letters, uh, help support and try to find an end to uh, food insufficiency. And um, uh, also volunteer. You can volunteer. You know, you feel good volunteering. Everybody does feel good when they volunteer and do something that they can benefit others. So uh, please do that. You can find out more by going to their website at dailybread.ca. And uh, once again, uh, Neil, I appreciate you coming in. Thanks, David. And uh, we thank you for listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. And until next time, uh, we will see you then. And onigiha. <laughs>